Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Matt, and welcome to Pod Wraiths, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. If this is your first time joining us, we're two friends watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine and sharing both our deep and irreverent thoughts on our favorite Star Trek series. This week, we're talking about Season 4, Episode 10, Our Man Bashir, teleplay by Ronald D. Moore and directed by Winrick Colby. This episode aired on November 27th, 1995. This week on Deep Space Nine, a transporter accident replaces the characters in Bashir's secret agent holosuite program with the physical forms of the station's senior staff. Secret agent program. Secret agent program. (laughs) (laughs) So I think I can assume the answer to this question, but I, you know... I have to start this podcast the same way we start all of our podcasts. Elise, did you or did you not remember this episode? I remembered the premise of this episode, like that it was James Bond themed, not the particulars. Oh, okay. I just remembered that like... Yeah. I think I'll remember it more going forward though. Like since I watched this episode the first time, I've probably seen every James Bond film at least twice. I'd seen a lot Mm -hmm. of them prior to it, but... I've yeah. definitely watched them all at least two or three times since, so they I got the references a lot better. Well, and like a couple of years ago, you were on that like marathon podcast about yes. James Bond. So like you like you like that you like dove deep into Her Majesty's Secret Service, right? So. <laughs> yes, I know all about it. No, um, yeah, yes, that is true. I have. I just love James Bond. Like, next weekend, I'm going to the drive-in to see three James Bond movies if I don't fall asleep. Nice. <laughs> nice. Which ones? Um, unfortunately, they're starting with You Only Live Twice, which is one of my less favorite ones. I kind of wish that was in the middle so in case I wanted to take a nap. Um, but then we are watching On Her Majesty's Secret Service and finally ending with The Spy Who Loved Me. Interesting that they're showing the Lazen B one. I think that it's like they're purposely trying to show um, different actors, but I am surprised that they are doing okay. that over um, something more recent. I wonder. Well, if, and they. Sorry, go ahead. I wonder. I don't know what the if they've. I think that they're saying. That, I don't know if they've done this before the drive-in that I'm going to because it's possible. Maybe they'll do another one where they do um, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, and Daniel Craig or something. Mm. Mm. Like, these are, like, the first three actors. Yeah, it's just, I don't know, like you say, if I was picking a a Connery Bond, I don't know if I'd pick the one with yellow face, but hey, that's just me. Yeah, and Um. I always, every time I watch that, I actually realize that the yellow face part of it is less time in the movie than i remembered like it it stands out yeah, so much fair. to me that i'm like so yeah. cringe about it and then i i rewatched it somewhat recently and i was like okay it's not good like it's bad that they do yeah. that but it's in less of the movie than i had recalled and aki is a really cute uh, bond girl so yeah at least they're not doing diamonds are forever which just has the like unfortunate I don't know what the right word is that it's just boring <laughs> so at least this is like a more interesting plot than than the boring movie <laughs> yeah fair enough I thought you were gonna go because like you know that the like you know problematic lens you can look at in in diamonds are forever are like 
the creepy like coded queer like oh, yeah, henchmen Winton, but i'm Winton, like Winton they kind of rule yeah winston <laughs> so kid winston kid are like i can't i feel like they're gay and also like they're portrayed as like weirdos <laughs> yeah um yeah it's yeah yeah i was i was talking with um actually one of my my friends that that does drag we were out for for drinks a month or two ago and we were talking about you know our our fondness for um problematic representation sometimes Mm. like and uh (laughs) that is a good example yeah or like even like the whole like you know cross-dresser like you know trans panic like murderer trope that you see like in psycho spoilers for psycho um (laughs) like all all the way through right um like even again another another modern example is of course um silence of the lambs which is one of my my favorite movies yeah yeah well and like we were talking about buffalo bill and how the film explicitly states that bill isn't isn't trans that's what Lecter says so then we came to the conclusion that it's not problematic trans representation it's problematic non-binary representation so Mm -hmm. buffalo bill we've decided is now a non-binary icon (laughs) um sans um skin suit hopefully Um, hey i mean who am i to judge (laughs) fair um it's been a really long time since i've watched that movie i should revisit it um one i watched and i mean we'll go listeners we'll go back to bond but you know it just at least and i haven't haven't talked for a minute um there's definitely some of that in the Brian De Palma movie, like Dressed to Kill, like with Michael Caine, and I think that one's like even worse. So it makes oh, Silence look look slightly less problematic. By, <laughs> so uh... I watched Dressed to Kill first, is what you're telling me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which again, like with the idea that it's like you know problematic. Yeah, but, like, of course. It it definitely like it's De Palma's like influences all completely like on the table. So you get the like, you know. <laughs> homages slash ripoffs slash heavy influences <laughs> of Hitchcock, but then also like um the ideas of like Jello or Giallo, I don't can't remember how you per se it like the the Italian like thriller genre, which kinda mm. like leads into this. So it's yeah. Anyways, James Bond. So this episode actually aired ten days after Goldeneye had come out, which was the first Bond movie in about six years. So it was very timely, I guess. Which I think they were kind of planning for a bit, like yeah. on that, you know, that hype that like Bond was back. But like when we were doing the the re- kind of the pre research and like reading and prepping for this podcast, realizing that there was a remembering, realizing remembering, actually looking at the dates, so there's only six years between License to Kill and Goldeneye mm-hmm. was a bit of a trip. Oh, see, because, because I've been podcasting about Bond so much. Like, I've done two Bond podcasts on different yeah. podcasts. And so I, that is like, I just knew that already. <laughs> so where yeah, your, well, and where like, your brain is at is where my brain was a couple years ago. <laughs> and like, it's probably a product of like age and, you know, being like thinking of like all the Bond movies like pre-Pierce Brosnan were like phase one and then 
Brosnan like launched this other phase because it's like I remember in the media at the time like this is what like you say 95 so I would have been nine on the like oh my god Bond's back it's like you know we haven't seen him forever and blah 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 and it's like only been six years like yeah it just to put that in like perspective because it's like how what, long has were... it been between recent Bond movies you know mo- mostly from production yeah. standpoint not like oh we're taking a break it's just that yeah. movies take a lot longer to make now um, it's interesting because they wanted Pierce Brosnan to be in the movies that Timothy Dalton was in. Like, yeah. But he was doing Rem- Remington Steel. Yeah. And they, yeah, he- they couldn't get him. So that's. So I wonder what would have happened if we had him earlier. But I am glad we have Timothy Dalton when we do. It just um, sucks that they weren't better movies that he was in. But, like, so. The interesting thing between, like, I think looking at Bond as a franchise and also, like, looking at Star Trek as a franchise and, like, being... Again, I know Bond's based on novels that came out before this, but basically being so tied with, like, 60s pop culture and then, like, Mm -hmm. growing with it is your... your, Your Taylor Swift eras of Bond (laughs) is kind of like your... um, your Star Trek series, right? Where, like, you mm. have the original series, which is Star Trek through the lens of the 60s. You have, um, I think our only window into what 70s Trek could have looked like was the motion picture. Yeah. Then you get, you know, your flavors of 80s. <laughs> you have <great>. your 90s. <laughs> you have your, like, 90s Trek, which we're obviously covering now. Yes. You have Enterprise that gives you your, um, your, your early Trek. 2000s, post 9-11, <laughs> like... Yeah you know, War on Terror era Trek, and then you have the JJ-verse, and then you have, like, Star Trek coming back on on TV and kind of, you know, things like that. And, like, Bond, like, works very much the same way through its eras. And it's interesting that this episode kind of even plays, like, obviously it's leading into the kind of, you know, mid-century modern kind of 30 years later nostalgia revival of the 90s um, and leading into kind of the connery aesthetic but the plot lines were like very very 70s roger Mm -hmm. moore era right yeah and this and i i i want to get into it a little bit because i want to pull out all the fun bond references but like specifically the set and the score felt very roger moore to me yeah at least toward the end of the episode um before we get into the James Bond references, I wanted to say a couple things. I was laughing that since last week's episode was very much, um, it felt Indiana Jones-ish, as we said. <laughs> it's funny that yeah. two weeks in a row we have some, like, Sean Connery nods. <clears throat> um, and also, this episode, this was the first episode that was filmed after Nana Visitor and Alexander Sido, like started dating in real life. So it was kind of fun. They obviously get to kiss on screen, although um, Alexander kisses uh, Terry Farrell later <laughs> as Dax, or uh, sorry, as Honey Bear. Um, <clears throat> so that was fun. And I really enjoyed ha- um, that Garrick was like along for the ride because Garrick is a spy it- within the show. So it was really fun to see his commentary on how ridiculous Bond is compared to what he learned in the Obsidian Order. You can definitely, I think, feel some of the, like, new relationship energy and, like, chemistry, and especially some of those early scenes with um, 
Nanaz, like, you know, the, the Russian colonel, yes. and Julian in the front. So, like, when they have that kiss, it's, like, pretty hot. And then it cuts to, like, Garrick, like, watching. And I'm, like, knowing this background that they're deep in the, the throes of, like, new relationship energy. I'm, like, I know they're all professionals and whatever, but if I was Andrew J. Robinson, I would have been, like, or what's his middle initial if it was andrew robinson whatever i was thinking of edward g robinson that's probably oh yeah no i think it's from. just andrew um, robinson um anyways if i was if i was andy i would have been like do you guys want me to leave i can like, <laughs> right. go take or, like my, i'll like, cover you know my eyes I mean? <laughs> yeah that's yeah funny. exactly and then i guess like my my thought elise that i want to run by you in relation to garrick's professional commentary <laughs> that I think somewhere between Bond's MI6 and Garrick's Obsidian Order, we have Jack Ryan's CIA. That's fair. I do think that, based on the way he acted within this episode, that Garrick cares about self-preservation more than any of these other fictional characters um, within his job. Um, So I don't know who I would compare him to, but I do think it is somewhere in the middle, because Jack Ryan is... Jack Ryan is of, you know, an- analyst turned agent, but like also family man. So like that doesn't yeah. sit with Garrick for me, but um, it is interesting. Well, and it's, it's like the idea too, like, and even like this whole episode starts out with the idea of like fantasy and like power fantasies and like wish fulfillment and like Bond can be very, is, is very much that. But I do think some of, like, the Clancy, the Tom Clancy stuff and, like, the, like you know, Jack Ryan and, like, the Jack Ryan movie specifically, is it still that kind of male, like, power fantasy? But it's, like, the, the thinking, like, the academics, like, the arts degree, like, persons where it's, like, oh, I can never be James Bond, but I could probably be Jack Ryan. Because it's slightly more grounded, where it's like, oh, I'm like, you know, the bookworm that gets my chance, and I'm like also good at this. Like, you know what I mean? It's kind of like slightly more easier, like self, like inflict for self insert for politics majors. Speaking of Garrick (laughs) and self preservation, though, I have another thing I want to run by you. Yes. So, is Garrick's Obsidian Order Jason Bourne's CIA? Now, not Jason specifically. But all the Treadstone people trying to track him down and, you know, worry about their own careers and all that really good um, bureaucracy stuff that Tony Gilroy writes so well. I have only seen one Bourne movie, but from what you have just said, that does sound more accurate. I don't remember which one I've seen, even. I mean, probably Identity, the first one. Yeah, maybe I've seen two of them. I don't remember. I think I actually saw a later one. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know. I just never... Um, I think my parents read the, all the books. Mm. I know they have, like, a little Robert Ludlum section of their of their uh, library. <laughs> yeah. I'll get to them eventually. We know I love spy shit. <laughs> so just a little kind of general plot outline because we kind of have we don't really have an a and a b story they're all intermixed but we have you know the the very star trekky and like tech problem that they need to solve and then there's the plot with the references within like the hollow suite right so the plot yes. of the hollow suite is julian has to work with 
a Russian agent to find out who's causing these earthquakes and kidnapping all these scientists represented by the very attractive honey bear as played by Terry Farrell slash Jadzia Dax. Um, he has to go play Baccarat against Mr. Duchamps, who is Worf, to win a visit to Dr. Hippocrates Noah, <laughs> uh, was played by Avery Brooks, and Dr. Noah's plan is to start a new world. He's going to flood the earth with the lasers, hence the whole Noah reference, and start over again. So this whole plot is very much the spy who loved me. Um, Mr. Duchamps, I'm not pronouncing that correct, is supposed to be like an, a version of uh, Le Chiffre from the Casino Royale book since that movie had not come out yet. Um, I mean, Dr. Noah is obviously a nod to Dr. No. And um, starting a new world on his island or wherever is the plot of Moonraker, um, which is that they're going to start a new society with like a better race of people. Um, so that it's just all very bond, all, all of it. And it's, it's wonderful for me. The, I thought that the tuxedos that Garrick and Julian were wearing were amazing. All the costuming was, was really bond. Um, the names of the characters, Mona loves it, Honey Bear. Pussy Galore. Yes. Um, Listeners, if you're not aware, that's the name of the Bond girl in Goldfinger. I'm not being a perv. <laughs> that is my favorite Bond Ian girl. Ian Fleming is the perv. Yes. Uh, Pussy Galore is canonically lesbian, so I love Goldfinger, but it doesn't make sense. <clears throat> um... Yeah, there's some really fun names. Um, well, Goldfinger just came out before this, and we had um, On a Top. <laughs> Our gold, Golden Eye, you mean? Oh, yes, apologies. <laughs> Zena On a Top. Yes. On a Top? On a Top. Um, Cisco was costume when he's um, when we finally meet him. He's wearing a, a jacket that's very similar to what Dr. No wears in Dr. No. Um, the score that is done by um, Jay Chataway, which I said earlier, is extremely Bond-like. Later in the episode, when, when the layer is falling apart and it gets like a little jazzy, that felt very Roger Moore to me. Um, oh, Sorry, I just I just mentally went someplace thinking of Famke Jensen, Xena on a top and Golden Nine being nine years old and the effect that her whole thing in that movie made me and as an adult anyways we don't have to go down that way (laughs) did you want her to kill you with her thighs (laughs) well it's it's like that i'm sure you've seen it it's like even memed on tiktok where it's like a a a femme presenting person that's like no i can't sit on your face i'm like you know my ass is like the size of this pillow i'll like suffocate you and then it cuts to like someone saluting going glory glory what a hell of a way to die Um. (laughs) i love that um we have O'Brien as the henchman Falcon with the fucking most badass eye patch I've ever seen in my entire life, um, which was very much like the henchman odd, odd job. But he also had the an eye patch, which made me think of the villain Largo in Thunderball. I don't know if I've ever actually seen original flavor Thunderball. I've definitely yeah. seen Never Say Never Again because okay. we had it on on vhs i'm Um, I'm very sad for you right now 
Um, Thunderball is famously my favorite Bond movie. So I think that you need to rectify this as soon as possible and then get back to me with all of your thoughts. I require at least a two-page essay. Um, okay, but is is there a scene where Bond and the villain play video games together that shock you? There's an underwater fight scene. You have to watch it. Yeah, but it doesn't have Kim Basinger in it. No, it has Domino, who is one of the best Bond girls, who I don't remember the actor's name. Fair enough. I'll put it on the list. I Never Say Never Again doesn't even have a theme song. Like, uh, I I just I just thought it was so... I mean, (laughs) that's fair. It's not good. Um, But I just remember, like, the idea of it being non-canonical and existing because of, like, a lawsuit, and it's just, like, a low-grade remake of Thunderball, but they got Connery. Like, it's just the whole, I, the whole history of that, production history of you, that movie, yeah. I think, is, you know like, why an interesting story. You know but... why it's called that, right? That's because called... Connery said he'd never play Bond yes. again, right? You know also yeah. that when, so, when they, it's really interesting because the rights to Casino Royale, and which included the rights to... Um, Lashif and Spectre and those terms um, came back to or Ion um, I, I don't I always forget if it's Eon or Ion the, the, the production company I think it's Eon but... thank you um, it ca- actually came back to them because I think Sony had it it was very it's very confusing but it's actually came to them in the same deal that allowed uh, I think they traded it for like Spider-Man so the oh, really? fact that we got this, the fact that we got the Casino Royale movie eventually in 2006, I believe, was the same deal that allowed them to do the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies. They're somehow Spider-Man. all wrapped up in the same like rights switch. I don't remember all the details, but I always find that very interesting. Well, yeah, because there was that like other. Speaking of James Bond spoofs, there was like that Peter Sellers and like yeah, I actually was in it, like Casino Royale, which I know I've seen, but I don't really remember. I couldn't get through it. I actually turned that off. I don't. I there are things like I love Doctor Strangelove, but Peter sometimes Peter Sellers is doing things that I'm just like cannot follow you down this path. (laughs) Um. But yeah, so I never actually watched the the spoofy Casino Royale. I've always, I've never, I don't even know if you can, like, get it, like, through, like, legally obtained means. But there's also, like, that Casino Royale, like, TV movie, like, before oh, the Oh, it's on YouTube. The movies. I watched it. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's wonderful. Is it good? Yeah, it's about yeah. an hour. Peter Laurie's in it. Um, yeah. It's... So Bond is American, and his name is... Oh, that's right! His name is Jimmy Bond, and there's another American... There's another... It's not Felix, but there's, like, a guy helping him that I think is British, so they, like, switch nationalities. Um, It's, like, an hour thing, and Peter Lorre is... I think Peter Laurie might be the chief, but I don't remember. But they might have... I don't remember if they have the exact names. Like, they might have given him a different name. Yeah. Um, it came out in the 50s. But yeah, I'll, I'll send you the YouTube version because it's, it's like under an hour. I've watched it once or twice. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's even another... Speaking of Felix, like, 
the guy who developed this program is named Felix, which I think yes. could be a reference to Felix. Lager. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bashir's friend that made the program mm-hmm. within the within the episode. Yes. Um, I so I really enjoyed also the the layer that they had for Doctor Noah. He was like in the snowy mountains, and then there was like a whole underground part that looked like rocks, which just felt very Bond. Um, we got like a really good villain monologue, which gave uh, Bond time to, or sorry, Bashir time to um, figure out a way to uh, get out of the bad situation. <laughs> and then at the end, we get the, um, you know, Bashir saying that they'll they'll return again, <laughs> which is very Bond because Pen- at the end they're always like James Bond will return. Pending a cease and desist letter from um, the Bond producers. I don't think it was a full cease and desist. Um, they just got... A, so they, MGM sent the production a very stern letter. I think that they might... Because it's... Maybe it's I think the heads of Paramount actually... Like the letter went up the food chain. Um, I think it was just like a tone it down a little bit type of... So they did do... A hollow, another episode which I had forgotten of with this character in the hollow novel, but it was toned down a lot more. We'll we'll get to that when we get to it. Um, I think they just didn't. I think if they had cut the Doctor Noah part, it would have been a lot. They wouldn't have angered them so much. It was very much like I don't know. I did feel that if they hadn't gotten the letter, this would have been a more reoccurring thing, like how we always had. Um, in Voyager, you know, <clears throat> Janeway was always like having her classical novel, uh, hollow sweet things. Like, I think it would have yeah. been continuous. And then, uh, also to like, what was I thinking of? Eventually, there's a different program of Bashir's, um, a different hollow sweet program of Bashir's later on that becomes, I think, maybe more what they were looking to, for, like, this world to do like this game world to do right um i don't remember the the vic stuff where it becomes like a hangout for everyone yes which i like a lot of people don't like that but i think it's fun i'm pro vic sounds like a drug i'm pro provix provix talk to your doctor about provix side effects may include (laughs) <laughs> oh no which made me think of pete campbell or whatever <laughs> arrived at it independently direct <laughs> well, more marketing. his father-in-law but perfect chemical um that's that's right um what was i gonna say i do have to wonder how much of the like hey maybe lay off like letter from mgm had to do with like the timing of goldeneye coming out and if it's like if bond was still in like that six-year period like before where it wasn't like revived or whatever yeah, if they, they would have cared, cared quite as much you know what i mean but mm-hmm. who knows um so apparently i don't know much about it but i wanted to mention that there is a spy movie called our man flint which i have never seen um it, it came out in 1966 it's like a spy comedy that parodies james bond and that is where they got the title for the episode from. 
and um, James Colburn is in that. So I'm actually kind of curious to watch that. It has, I don't normally go by ratings, but it has a 77% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is not bad. So I think that that might be something that I want to watch eventually. There's also like a similar sort of um, series of like American spy movies that weren't spoofs, but they're very much like indicative Bond. They're like the Matt Helm films that where Dean Martin plays Matt Helm. Oh, I don't um, know those. Yeah, there's there's one I like think I'd be willing to to check out and watch, and it's the one that like Sharon Tate's in. But okay, that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's an also I I don't know if you've loved this this movie, but it's the one that. Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate watches in the theater oh, in yeah, Once yeah, Upon yeah. a Time in Hollywood. So that um, was a movie that I didn't enjoy the first half, but it all paid off, so I ended up loving it in the end, if that makes sense. Yep, totally. I have not watched it a second time, but I probably should. Um, I want to say one more thing about the, this episode in general. Um, they actually were pretty... Um, hesitant to do an episode with a malfunctioning holodeck because that was such a trope that was used in um, TNG but they really um, because they did the transporter patterns like tech glitch they felt like it was a little bit more um, deep, deep space nine than just what was happening on TNG <clears throat> yeah it was like too fun of an idea to like pass up they thought yeah i think so too and i think they were right because i really really think this episode's a lot of fun there's i don't think that there's that much plot in this episode really because basically bashir has to keep the plot of the hollow suite going just so that we don't lose our our faves bodies <laughs> So, during a transporter accident, Cisco, Kira, O'Brien, Worf, and Dax's bodies get saved inside Bashir's Hollow Suite program after they were temporarily in the pattern buffer. Um, but their brain patterns get saved in the rest of the ship. Sorry, in the rest of the station. So, all of the ship, the station's functions are down. The only thing working is, I guess, the Defiant, because that's unattached. So I just, I like the idea that their bodies can be in the hollow seat program, but their brains are, as Rom have, says, has to be saved on a quantum level. So the hollow suite's not uh, strong enough for that. And that their brain <laughs> patterns take up the rest of the memory on the entire ship. Um, the whole time they were doing this, I was like, okay, but like, do they have a backup of like the computer's um, functions so that when this is all over, they can like put it back? Like, did they reboot the system? Um, the only main character- They pulled it from the cloud. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which backup do you want? The one from last week or the one from two years ago? Um, <laughs> it was really fun to watch we don't see um eddington very often but um we have odo i mean i guess with all of the people that are caught in the pattern buffer and then in the hollow suite program and with bashir not being able to leave the hollow suite program all the higher up starfleet people are not able to work on this problem so it makes sense that eddington w was there um working with Odo and kind of being in charge because he's probably the the next highest Starfleet officer on the station. Totally. 
And they need to get this done with the help of Quark and Rom because Quark owns the Hollow Suite and Rom is the technician on the Hollow Suite. And we get to see Rom do some of his super smart tech stuff, which I love. <clears throat> with spatulas and strainers. Yeah, and like, it was so you know. good. Um, there was apparently some sort of terrorist organization behind the attack. I didn't really... Something someone was angry about some peace treaties. I really kind of wasn't paying attention too much to that. Yeah, so it's a Cardassian like group called the True Way, who like because you know there's the civilian government in Cardassia now, and right. they made peace with Bajor and all that. They're like, hey, this isn't cool. We want to like make Cardassia for Cardassians. Right. Um. So that so those the groups are are they like the anti Goldukat then? Because isn't he like? in charge of the civilian yeah. government. He saw which way the wind was blowing and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So these people are like, you know, America first or whatever in Cardassia. <laughs> They're Cardassia first people is my interpretation. Um, Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. I really mu- I really love that Rom got to use his expertise so much in this episode and the fact that like he was, well, my... You know, whatever he works on for the Hollow Suite is not compatible with Starfleet um, computers. So he has to do all these, like, modifications with these, like, huge wires that are in these, like, ridiculous sized (laughs) tubes, um, which was really funny. And the whole time Eddington's like, O'Brien's going to kill me, which I I found really funny because, you know, you know O'Brien's going to be like, what the hell did you do (laughs) to this? Well, and I did like I did like the idea, like you know, talking about like you know Julian or Garrett coming around to Julian's idea that like exercising your creativity, like you know, and your play and sense of fun, um, allows you to like be more productive and think outside of the box and things like that at you know your day job. Yeah. That they basically had to do this over the course of the of the episode, um, because they used the defiant. Right, because mm-hmm. um, that had the transporter. That's the word I'm looking for. That worked and everything else. So again, it was it was very like out of the box thinking. I found. I mean, basically, when Eddington was like, "Hey, Bashir, you got two more minutes." So we get to like the finale of this this uh, Hollow Suite program, <laughs> and it's really interesting because Cisco as or Avery Brooks, rather, as Dr. Doctor Noah does his whole monologue. And at the end of it, Julian's like, okay, let's do it. And he throws everyone off by actually going through with Dr. Noah's plan because he knows it'll give them more time to rescue all of them. <laughs> like, right as they were going to be like, you know, uh, Dr. Noah is like, I didn't expect to win, and then was like, I'm going to kill you anyway. <laughs> but they get transported out of the hollow suite um, just in time. And, of course, O'Brien is like, what did you do to my ship? <laughs> Which is so funny. I I would imagine <laughs> any engineer would feel ownership over the ship and the station as, like, they're the ones responsible for keeping them running. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. It was really fun in general. I know this is like an afterthought to see all of our faves act out of character. Um, I always enjoy that. 
and we usually only get that in a Mirror Universe episode, but I actually enjoy this more than a Mirror Universe episode. No, for sure. For sure. I also thought it was really smart the way they cast each character within the Hollow novel, you know. Yeah. Basically, Kira was a terrorist spy, so to have her be the Russian spy makes a lot of sense. Jax is a scientist, so have her to continue to be a scientist within the show, uh, within the Hollow novel made a lot of sense. O'Brien is often shown as um, British, even if we love him (laughs) anyway. So him as Falcon made a lot of sense to me. And um, Worf or Michael Doran looked fucking hot as hell in that white suit, (laughs) the white jacket. I was obsessed. So even if they only picked it, he just, yeah, it was great. That was the most out of character of all of them, but it, it still worked for me. So overall, did you enjoy the episode then? Yeah, um, it was a lot of fun. Just, I'm sure I liked it last time, but just with how much I love Bond, I think it was just, they. I thought they did a really good job. It was overall silly, but I don't think that, I think it was intended to be. I don't think it was too silly or anything. No, I, I, I agree with that. And in doing some prep for the episode, you know, looking at some some quotes from ron moore and the old school like aol chats that he used to do in like 97 or whatever and even like interviews with alexander sadig where like this episode is like important for julian from like a character development standpoint and that's something that we've really been tracking with with bashir this season specifically and it kind of it hits, like you say, in that kind of like that silliness and the bravado and like the idea of fantasy and play. And then like, you know, the creativity of the solution, the way in which, you know, he does shoot Garrick, but then uses Garrick's perspective to win in the end and kind of like, you know, internals and kind of the best of, of all worlds sort of situation. It's like, like we talked about with Rom a couple of weeks ago and in, in Little I keep wanting to call it Little Goldman because of the podcast. Little <laughs> That's funny, though. Um, yeah, it's been like three weeks now or whatever. But you know what? Also, I mixed up Goldfinger and Goldeneye earlier. So I think we just have gold on the memory, on the like brain right now. Goldeneye. Rest in peace, Tina Turner. Oh, um, that's such a good theme. As is Goldfinger. But the way in which we talked about um, that Shirley Bassey gold finger. Yeah. She has three excellent. I love Diamonds Are Forever and I love her Moonraker song. I could go on for way too I mean, long I still think this. my favorite Bond. I still think um, my one of my favorite Bond themes is Nobody Does It Better by Carly Simon. But That's a great I also one. like Carly Simon was like one of my first crushes. So. Anyways, moving <laughs> on. What was I going to say? That like the ways in which we're recognizing Rom now, like uh, in this episode, earn little little green men. This is Bashir. Like this is my Bashir. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah. We didn't even talk about. Th- oh my god, we're so out of whack. Um, we're not. It's fine. We didn't talk about the fact that he shoots Garrick. Like I almost said Garrus. By by the way, <laughs> just now. <laughs> um, no one better shoot my boyfriend, Garrus. Um, yeah, he, you know, 
Garrick is basically challenging him to say, like, you're not really a hero. Someone has to die or is going to die and it's it happens. And Bashir is very much like, no, that I'm not going to stand for that. I'm not going to let anybody get in my way of trying to save everyone as much as possible. And so he sh- he shoots Garrick in the neck and then was like, eh, you'll be fine. It's a flesh wound. <laughs> and then <laughs> Garrick says, there's hope for you yet, doctor. And I was like, yes, I love this. Is there anything else you wanted to to cover on the episode itself before we moved into the closing segments um no i don't think i had anything now it's time for the altair water thirst quencher altair water within the context of (laughs) context of star trek first being mentioned by dr mccoy in the bar in star trek 3 or as elise reminded me recently we could also name it in honor of alta from altair 4 from forbidden planet which I just watched this weekend for the first time, and I absolutely loved it. And it was really fun to see where Star Trek got a lot of its um, influences from. Yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting, like, from that standpoint, you know, in the ways in which even Roddenberry didn't want the score for Star Trek to sound like... Um... Electronic. To sound like Forbidden Planet, yeah. but I also like the score was super ahead of its time. And yeah, I, I think it the was effects, the first like... electronic score, honestly. And it's just really interesting, like the point, its whole place, not just in like Star Trek history, but like science fiction history, and the ways in which MGM did a sci-fi movie with the full power of like the MGM like A list like productions and like scale and and like budget which really hadn't happened with science fiction up to that standpoint and like i mean i know we're all talking about uh ufos and aliens and stuff like that um in the news (laughs) but the idea that the ship was a ufo but it was a human ship and humans coming out of it and things like that was like pretty revolutionary for the time because flying saucers Flying saucers were like the bad guys. Right? Yeah, I su- I was surprised. That part surprised me that it was humans. Uh, baby, baby Leslie Nielsen coming out of that uh, UFO. It's also kind of weird seeing him just be a straight lead, like just like a lead, like and I'm not like yeah. in a comedy. Like- After we watched, um, uh, T- uh, Tessa, who's been on the pod is um here with me and after we watched that i made her watch the my favorite leslie nielsen episode of murder she wrote um so we did get some leslie nielsen comedy uh, right after the movie so who is your thirst candidate this week elise for our man bashir i mean i will say that dax wearing um those jessica fletcher glasses really works for me but the more I think about it, I think it's just Worf in that white jacket. It was just perfection. Not Garrick dressed like Pussy Galore and Goldfinger. <laughs> if only he had a crew of sexy lady pilots that he commanded, um, then I would go that <laughs> way. <laughs> what about you? I did also. Yeah, I mean, the whole episode, like, it's, it's pretty kitschy and campy and. Yes. And- 
hot in that sort of like campy way. Um, but I just wanted to specifically call out Mona loves its gravity defying <laughs> bustier. Her boobs looked phenomenal. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. And then there's like when she like, is there anything else I can like get for you, Julian? And he like, there's a shot. He looks straight at her cleavage and yeah. goes, you know, it's the entendre where it's like, I'll let you know. And it's just <laughs> so funny that we have we have a shot of Star Trek of Alexander Siddig straight up looking at another actor's tits. Yeah, it that felt very Roger Moore as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh... And then also the way that Garrick looks at Julian at the end when he's obviously internalized and heard the lessons and like, you know, that's yeah. how he uses it to get ahead creatively. He's just like, you know, so proud of his boy. <laughs> so that's... Uh... That's my partner. That's my quarterback. Mm-hmm. Or as they say, he's bouncing off my booty cheeks. I love the way he rides. I can hardly breathe when he's pumping deep inside. <laughs> what is that? I love it. Oh, it's like his new like country song that's like pretty gay. And the next it line sounds is like, very gay. he kisses up on my cheek and then kisses on my bussy. Like, yeah, th- there's a country song that has the word bussy in it. We love that. That makes it. me so pleased to know that. And I think we have the same candidate for most Star Trek thing. And we've already talked about it this episode. But Elise, what is it? The fact that we have a transporter error, a pattern buffer, holding people's likeness, and a holosuite drama all in one. Those are three top tier Star Trek tropes. A perfect storm. This is going to be hard on my boy. I was watching it with Tessa and AJ, and Tessa called it the trifecta. All right, Elise, until next time, where can folks find more of you on the internet? Yes, you can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Storygraph at chicken double underscore tendy. That's T-E-N-D-I. You can find me on Blue Sky at chicken tendy. You can find my other podcast, Fang Bangers Pod, on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky at Fang Bangers Pod with a Z, as well as anywhere you listen to your podcasts. What about and you? I just want to say if you're if you're in Canada or Great Britain, that's Fangbangers with a Z. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Blue Sky at Mattyhugh, M-A-T-T-Y-H-U-G-H. You can catch us together on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky at Podrace. And you can also email us at podrace at gmail.com. Please remember to rate and review us on the podcatching system of your choice. Thank you again to our editor, Melissa, and DJ Empirical for our interstellar theme song. Until next time, computer and program. Bye. Bye.